Well, I've titled today's sermon, Life in the Hand of God. If you're a believer today, you are in the hand of God. Do you believe that? I should see a whole lot more heads bobbing up and down. Is that true of you? Um, I'll I'll tell you, it is a biblical truth. Uh, You are in the hand of God. You can nod. (laughs) It's okay. Some are like, I'm not sure. Um, We have have discussed something pretty important the last few weeks. Well, it's all all important, isn't it? But uh, we, we, we learned about really how we are to live before the human authorities of this world and also how we're to live before, before God in this world. And our conclusion was that we are to obey the authorities of this world because they're appointed by, by God. Uh, they are his ministers, and we have to ultimately trust him to judge them appropriately, um, even if they don't seem to be ruling the way we would like them to, uh, to rule. Um, but in the courtroom of, of God, justice is always done. We have to understand that, that um, God is always just, and it's something that we have to accept by faith because we don't, always don't see it play out that way, right, in the world. And I want to flesh that out a little bit today. What do I mean by we have to accept that by faith? What I mean is we have to trust God. Faith in God is trust in God. Faith in God is not belief in God. I hope you understand the difference. Um, there is uh, enough, God has, has placed enough of himself in creation um, that man is without an excuse for not believing. God has written his law on our hearts. He's placed eternity there. Uh, we have no excuse for not believing in God. What he calls us to is a faith in him. It's a trust in him. A great illustration is you are all exhibiting great faith today. You've placed your faith and trust in that chair that you sit on right now, that that chair will hold you up. But are you sitting on your faith or are you sitting on the chair? You're sitting on the chair. It is the object of your faith that is what is so important. Your object of your faith, that is the Lord. He's, he is the object of our faith. Our faith is in one who is greater than all things. Um, when we say we are placing our faith in God, that he will do just things, he will do what's right, we're saying that we trust that his providential governing and preserving um, our acts are always good. Because when we observe the work of God, like Solomon was in chapter uh, 8 there, we try to figure it out, we attempt to come to some clear uh, conclusion, we, we can't always do that. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 17, you might remember Solomon ended with this, this thought. Then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. So Solomon was trying to really understand God's providential work. He couldn't figure that part out. What we have to do is... is base our faith on what we, what we know to be true, not what we necessarily see to be true. Solomon declared something that he knew to be true last week. It was in verse 12. Look at it. It's chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. 
up to that point, Solomon had said, here's what I've seen, right? This is what I see under the sun. But at that point, he says, this is what I know. I don't necessarily see this thing, but I know it, that it will be well with those who fear God. I don't know about you, but one of the greatest arguments that I have received over my life against the existence of God when I've talked with people is, has to do with the question of evil. It has to do with the question of evil in this world. It has to do with the question of why do bad things happen to good people? It has to do with those things. It's not necessarily about, uh, you know, uh, creation things and, and those things. It's about, well, if God is really God, and he's good, like you say, why do we see these things, right? That's, that's usually 99.9% of the time the things I get. Because if we're all honest, we look at the world, it is hard, right, to see God's working. Solomon had a hard time seeing God's working. And so he takes the mystery of that work of God today, and he's going to show us what to do with it in this chapter. So let's read. We're going to read chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath, as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there's hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun." Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to be in your word and to hear from you. Lord, we recognize that truth that as we open the pages of this divine book, we are hearing from the divine. And Lord, we pray that you would illuminate truth to us today. We do want to understand this. We do want to see how we are to live life in your hands. Lord, help us to understand this, that we might apply it to our lives for your glory. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 1, Solomon said, I, I considered all this in my heart. What, what is he considering, first of all? He says, all, all this. All, all of what he's been talking about up to that, uh, that point. The idea that God is governing over these, these rulers and these things, and yet he doesn't necessarily see um, God's justice always played out. It's a confusing thing. And so he considers this in his heart. And that word considers is an important word. It's nathan. And it means to, to put or to set in your heart or to apply it to your heart. It's not that he was just thinking this through some more. He has done that. He has used wisdom and he's used these things to sort of try to figure it out. But now he gets to this place and he says, I've set this in my heart. Solomon took what he knew to be true and applied it to his heart. And that is a great model for us to follow. We first have to take what we know to be true about God, what we know to be true um, in Scripture, and we have to apply it to our hearts. We cannot take first what we see and apply it to our hearts. Does that make sense? I'm making that distinction. We have to first take what we know to be true and apply it. Solomon does that, and the reason is so that he could declare it all, he says. He said, I, I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all. Well, what does he declare today? Well, today he's going to declare to us two fundamental truths, which will help us to, to grapple with this mystery of the work of God in such a way that it won't be a stumbling block. That is a stumbling block for many people, like I said. Why do we see these things in the world? If God's really at work, why don't we see him at work? That's a stumbling block. But Solomon here is going to set for you two foundational things. If we can just get these in our heart, like Solomon did, it will be a lot easier for us to live life in the hand of God. So two fundamental truths of God's work. I do encourage you to write these things down. These are, these are foundational truths for, for all, must, all believers, and we must accept these by faith. I, I, I cannot go into life necessarily and point these out to you by observation or present empirical evidence. I'm going to present a whole ton of biblical evidence, but these are things you must accept by faith. First, God has a particular care of and concern for his own people. I'm going to say that again. God has a particular care of and concern for his own people. That is a foundational, fundamental truth of God's work. And that's essentially what Solomon's conclusion was way back in chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 12, when he said, I surely know that it will be well with those who fear, fear God. And he says it here in verse 1 of chapter 9, right? I considered all this in my heart so that I, de I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. We're in the hand of God. That is the idea. To be in God's hand is to show that he has a particular care for you, a concern for you. It doesn't just mean in the providential control of, because he has providential control of everything, but it actually signifies a very special care for you. When, when Moses was, a, was talking to the second generation of, of the Israelites who were about to go into the promised uh, land, speaking about uh, God. He says in Deuteronomy 33, 3, yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. The saints are in the hand 
of God. It's not necessarily seen. We cannot simply, by observation, come to that conclusion, but God's word declares it to be true, and Moses declares it to uh, the Israelites there. David says in Psalm 31, verse 14 and 15, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. David realized that, that he was in God's providential hands there. And even though enemies were around, he could, he could, you're going you're to deliver me from those who persecute me. And Solomon understood this. He wrote a whole chapter about this very idea in Proverbs chapter 10. Make a, a short left-hand turn to Proverbs chapter 10. These are Solomon's own wise sayings here. And I'm just going to draw attention to all the verses in this chapter that speak specifically about the righteous. I went through and circled them all because he's speaking specifically about what the Lord does about the righteous, what he does for them, what the righteous do for themselves as well. But look at verse 3, Proverbs chapter 10. The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. The Lord won't allow the righteous soul to famish, to starve, to, to go without nourishment, to go without goodness, right? But the wicked, that he casts them away. Skip down to verse 6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Look at verse 7. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Down to verse 16. The labor of the righteous leads to life, the wages of the wicked to sin. Verse 20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. Up to 24, the fear of the wicked will come upon him and the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Verse 28, the hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Verse 30, the righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Look how much Solomon speaks about the life of the righteous and how much of that has to do with what God does with them. Right? The desire of the righteous, that'll, they'll be granted. The memory of the righteous is blessed. The righteous will never be moved. Now, when you look at that in life, do you necessarily see that all the time? Right? And, and do you feel that all the time? Maybe sometimes you don't. Let me take you to another one in Psalm chapter 34. A continue your left-hand turn through the Bible. Psalm chapter 34. We... Almost have a duplicate of here of, of Solomon's tactic of looking at life under the sun and then above the sun here in Psalm 34. But this is a Psalm of David. Maybe it's like father, like son. I don't know. But here in chapter 34, go down to verse 11. Here's, here's the righteous living under the sun. Okay. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? 
Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Okay? You want long life. You want many days. You want to see good in this life under the sun. Here's the things you do under the sun, right? Don't, don't speak evil. Uh, don't, you know, don't depart from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Those, those are activities under the sun, aren't they? And then, then we have above the sun. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. See, this, these, these are the, the sovereign, providential eyes of the Lord. They're on the righteous. They're on you now, right now. They're on every righteous soul on the, on the, on the planet. And his, his ears are open to your cry. He's ready. He's ready to hear you. And you say, yeah, but he sees everyone. Yeah, but differently. Look at the next verse. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay? His eyes are on you, but his face is in the face of those who do wicked. Now, again, do we see that necessarily? We, we see evil running rampant today, don't we? And you just want to go, well, where's God's face? I'm telling you, God's face is against the wicked. You have to trust that to be true. Why? God's word says it's true. It's against the wicked, but his eyes, his eyes, his providential eyes, they're on you. His ears are open to you. Look at verse 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. <laughs> How about that one? Have you cried out to the Lord lately and said, Lord, I just can't take it anymore. Deliver me. And yet you find no deliverance. Do you start questioning God then? Because you say, look, your word says you'll deliver me out of my troubles. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. All of them. What we have to understand as believers is that God loves his people. His eyes are on us. He cares for us. He has concern for us, but his ways are higher than our ways. And his delivering us from all of our afflictions might be a different deliverance than what I might consider deliverance. I have no doubt. We don't have it in scripture, but I have no doubt that Joseph down in that pit (laughs) was crying out for deliverance. And I'm sure he, he wasn't wanting it to be sold into slavery, right? I'm sure when he was in prison, he was crying out for deliverance. And when that baker and, was it the butcher or whatever, they, when they're in there, he's like, oh, finally, the Lord's going to use this. Nope, he's still in there. He's crying out for deliverance. But did God ultimately deliver him? Yes. Would God have still ultimately delivered him had he never left foot from that prison? We have martyrs that have lived those kinds of lives. Never physically on this earth, delivered from their affliction. Yet, Scripture says he delivers them out of them all. How do we resolve these things? Psalm 55, verse 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. You might say, well, I've been moved. I've been rocked. My world has been shattered. What does he mean? Let me tell you, we have to define righteousness. First of all, none of you are. No one's righteous. You you realize that, right? No one here is righteous, even though I began by saying, if you're righteous, the eyes are on you. You have the righteousness of Christ, but you yourself are not righteous. 
And so what we have to understand is that your righteousness is your position before God. And that position will never be moved. You never lose that. Your righteous standing before God is for all eternity. That is what he's talking about. You will never lose that. There's no pain, no affliction, no sin, nothing so great that will remove that righteous standing you have before God. The righteous cannot be moved. Why? Because he won't permit it. He shall never permit it. It won't happen. It can't happen. Try to make it happen. He won't permit it. Now, are those comforting words? <laughs> there should be. That is a fundamental foundational truth that we must we must understand. And those scriptures help confirm the words of Solomon here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you want to turn back there, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. You cannot be moved. We're under his special protection. We're under his special guidance. All of our activities are managed by him for our own good. Otherwise, what does Romans 8.28 even mean for us? And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. It says we know that. We know that. We may not necessarily see it in our life and how things are working out, but we know that all things work together for the good. How do we know that? Because God's word is true. And we understand that our righteous position before him, we cannot be moved from that. Second foundational truth here, God's care and concern cannot be measured by our outward condition. God's care and concern cannot be measured by our outward condition. Look at the rest of verse 1. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. God's love or God's hatred cannot be judged by what's happening to us, how prosperous we are or how afflicted we are. This is a fundamental problem with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Do you see the problem with that? Because that gospel then says, if prosperity is a sign of God's love, think about this. If this is, it's a sign of God's love upon you, his favor upon you, then does he not love the poor? If affliction is a sign of his hate, then he, does he not love the oppressed and the persecuted? See, you just can't go down that road. And it is a false gospel because it preaches an untruth about God. It's a fundamental untruth about God. We cannot look at how our condition is and then thus judge God loves me or God does not love me. What about Job? Job was blameless. Job was an upright man. He had a righteous standing before God. And he had no idea what was hitting him, and he had no idea why. We do as readers of the book, right? As the audience, we read, we have a glimpse behind the curtain. We know that it's a deal with Satan and God. And Satan's been given permission to afflict Job. Job doesn't know that. And so Job is struggling with that. I mean, he's, he's human after all, right? He's struggling to go, is this God's love? Is this God's care? Is this his, his, his love for his righteous people? And remember his great friends around him, Right? I'm going to read to you the words of the shortest man in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite. It's taking some of you a little longer. It's Job chapter 8. But this is, his, this is his perspective of what's happening to Job. Verse 5, if you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, 
If you are pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. I'm going to tell you, folks, that that is the answer every religion gives to Job's question in chapter 9, verse 2. And Job's question in chapter 9, verse 2 is, how can a man be righteous before God? And the religions of the world come in the form of Bildad the Shuhite, and they say, well, if you're just pure, well, if you're just upright, then he makes your way prosperous. It's just that simple, right? Just be, just do, just act. It's all works, right? Every religion, every religion, you just have to be this. And Job, you're obviously not being that. You need to make supplication. You need to repent. And then he'll prosper your way. God's love is not set upon you. But let me tell you, his love has nothing, nothing to do with purity, has nothing to do with uprightness, has nothing to do with prosperity. How do we know God's love? Well, we certainly know how it was demonstrated to us, don't we? I mean, Romans 5.8 tells us that. He demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But, but 1 John 4.16 tells us this. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So we know and believe that the love that God has for us, and we, we, you know, if we look at this love, right, we, we abide in love, we're abiding in God, and God is abiding in, in us. And ultimately, we're saying here is that we know uh, love by that which is within us. God abides within us. We know it. But we don't necessarily always see it, and certainly not by the world's definition of love, right? Right? Oh, he, he loved you. He would care for you and give you things. Or make your way prosperous. Well, that is not necessarily what God has for us, but we know that He loves us. Could you judge God's love for His Son by what He did to Him on the cross? But does He love Him? Yeah. So Solomon has laid down these fundamental laws for us. We can know God's love, we can know His special care for us, regardless of what we experience in this life. We're in His hands. We're in His hands. So, having established those two fundamental laws, he gives us three observations that, when understood in light of those laws, shouldn't shake us or cause us to stumble. These are just what we see in life. It's life under the sun. But what it does give us, it gives us the best way to live this life under the sun. Okay, you're in the hand of God. How do you live under the sun? What's the best way to do that? Three overall observations of God's work. Number one, all things come alike to all. All things come alike to all. That's right off the bat in verse two. I took these straight from the passage. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. So this carries on with the point that when we observe the events of, of life, we don't see any one particular party being favored necessarily. Um, the, the righteous are not visibly favored by providence. The, the wicked are not visibly judged by the same. But here Solomon shows us a great difference between the characters of each, doesn't he? They're, they're characterized quite differently. And it's a distinction that does not change. 
I mean, look, you have the righteous and the wicked. And look at the characterization of the righteous. Good, clean, uh, he who sacrifices or, or worships, right? But the wicked, bad, unclean, he who does not sacrifice, he who does not worship. Yes, all things come alike to all, but the characterization of these two are they're vastly different, right? Those aren't melded together. There is an eternal distinction between moral good and evil, righteous and wicked. And all through this, he's putting the, the, the good first and then the bad, the good, right? The good and the clean or the unclean. He who sacrifices, he who doesn't, meaning worship. And as is the good, so is the sinner. Meaning the righteous are good, they're good in God's sight, and they seek to do good in the world for God's glory. That as is the good. But what about the sinner? Well, the sinners do what sinners do, right? They violate God's law. Live for all your own glory. So as is the good, so is the sinner. There's this eternal distinction between the two. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. I think the taking an oath also is the good because it's always been the good first and then the bad. And I think it refers back to chapter 8, verse 2, when he says, obey, submit to the authorities, right? Because of your oath to God. I think it speaks of allegiance to God. But the wicked fear taking that oath. I'm not going to declare allegiance to God. That's the wicked, right? They refuse to do that. So there's this great difference in their character, but there's not much difference in their condition. And that's what this is about. That one thing happens to them all. Look at verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. One thing happens to all, both, the, both of them. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. From our perspective, from our perspective, from human perspective, there's no difference between what happens to the righteous and what happens to the, the, the wicked necessarily. Is David rich in scripture? So is Nabal. Is Joseph favored by his prince? So is Haman. Is Ahab killed in battle? So is Josiah. Are the bad figs carried to Babylon? So are the good. Matthew Henry said that. So one thing happens to them all. There seems to be no distinction between righteous and wicked in terms of what happens to people, but there is a distinction between their characters. That's the idea here. And this knowledge that the same event happens to all causes evil in the hearts of man to become rampant because there's no distinction, because they see no recourse for their evil. That's a similar thought then that we saw back in uh, chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, or verse 11, because the sentence that goes against the evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Because they don't see punishment coming, they're just going to continue to do evil. Here, the idea is this, because they don't see God favoring the righteous, then their hearts just run rampant, mad with evil even. Madness is in their hearts while they live. You remember the story of the prodigal son? And he wanted his inheritance from his father early, and he went and he wasted that inheritance and in prodigal living. Do you remember what brought him back? It said that he came to himself, which implies that he wasn't himself. He was mad, right? He was mad with prodigal living. That's the idea here. Madness is in their hearts while they live, 
And what happens after that? They go to the dead. They go to the dead. Ultimately, that is the one event that happens to all, right? They, they go to the dead. Here's the point. Just because all things come alike to all, it does not mean that God's care and concern for the righteous is not present. Because what we see happens to both groups, it doesn't mean that his care and concern for the righteous is not present. Because Scripture declares that it is. You must accept that. We cannot base it upon what we have seen or not seen. Second overall observation of God's work. For the living, there is hope. For the living, there is hope. It's in verse 4. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, this is a sobering reality, actually. What, what is it talking about here? There, there is almost a vanity that you can see in this earth, right? Because of one event happening to both the righteous and the wicked. But there's a great advantage to being alive, <laughs> right? A great advantage, and that is it. I heard it. grace. Because what about the unrepentant? They still have an opportunity. Grace can still touch that soul, can it not? And so it is much better to be alive. It's a great thing to be alive. They have a chance to repent. And that's the point of that little proverb there, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, because a dog was a a despised scavenger in the ancient world, right? That's That's the thing you kick in the street and keep walking. But a lion was the mightiest and grandest of the creatures in the ancient world. But if the dog, even though he's despised, if he is alive and the lion is dead, the dog is way better off because he's alive, right? It's a very simple proverb because he has hope. And that's the point here. The living have hope. And the hope is explained in verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they will have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Those living have the opportunity to consider death. They know they're going to die. We talked about that when, it's, when Solomon said it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, right? They know that they're going to die, um, and so they have an opportunity to consider that, to evaluate their life, to think about that. But do the dead have that opportunity any longer? <laughs> no. That was their one and only chance. This life is your one and only chance. Uh, you only get one go-round on the merry-go-round, Right? I know this seems a little, you know, but this, that's true. The, life is, is a great gift. We don't treat it that way. It's a wonderful gift. You have this life, and you have this opportunity in where you can do good, and you can live for him. The living know that they're going to die, but they have that opportunity. But the dead, they know nothing. All that they were acquainted with is no more. There was a quote in a movie. I don't remember exactly which one. I think it was a Western of some kind, but it said, um, it's, it's a heck of a thing killing a man because you take away all he's got and all he's ever going to have. And the idea was, it's a sobering thing. I think it was some gunslinger going out. Like, I'm going to go, like, listen, you got to think about this before you take a guy's life. It's a huge thing. Life is precious. And the dead have nothing more. They have no acquaintance, no memory. They have no more reward, it says right? There's no enjoyment of this life that's going to bring them enjoyment in the afterlife. That has ceased. The enjoyments of this life are for this life. I know the Egyptians tried to take the enjoyments of this life with them into the afterlife. They never worked. Stuff still sat there, right? But that's because they're for this life. 
The enjoyments of this world are for here. You enjoy them here and now. But there's no more reward once you're gone. For the memory of them is forgotten, meaning they have, they have no more name. Verse 6, also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. They have more, no more uh, affections. There's, still, there's, no, there's no love uh, or hatred. Uh, friendships or enemies, there's no envy. All of that is gone. Nevermore will they have a share in any of those things. So he's giving this to us to say, I want, I want to sober you up a bit. The living have great hope. Here's what the dead have. They don't have any of that, but you have great hope. So what is the hope? What about the living? Well, Solomon advises us to enjoy, pursue three things. Verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. This is very interesting. Solomon switches this up a bit. He says, go. Earlier, he just advised us, didn't he? He said, nothing's better for a man than he should eat and drink and his soul should enjoy the fruit of his labor, right? He said those kind of things over and over again. I recommend, basically. Here he says, go. He summons us to action. Go. Go what? Go, go live. Go live. Seek joy where it can be found. You have this one life. This is not hedonism, by the way. This is not hedonism. Because he says this, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. What's he mean by that? These things are from the providential hand of God, right? The bread, the wine, whatever else you would eat, KFC. They're from the providential hand of God for you and meant to be enjoyed by you. God has already accepted your works with those things. You remember in Deuteronomy 28, there's the two mountains, and, and, and Moses has to put the blessings and the cursings. On Mount Gerizim are the, the blessings, and on Mount Ebal are the curses, right, uh, for their disobedience. One of the things that the Israelites could disobey in and therefore bring a curse upon them was uh, just not serving the Lord with joy and gladness. It's in Deuteronomy 28, 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. I've given you the abundance of everything, but you didn't serve the Lord with joy, with gladness for those things, with contentment for those things. And that is the first uh, point here, contentment. That's the first thing we're to pursue is contentment with these things. Those are given to us to enjoy. We don't need to seek more of it. Whatever he's given us, we should just enjoy it. And this has been, I know, a theme throughout here. But, but now he's connected it to this idea that even though we see bad things happening, you're in the hand of God, okay? You, 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 the, right, the righteous are in his hands. And so look at life this way. Don't, don't look at all the negativity going on. That is just life. Trust that God is active in those things. Trust that he's involved in your life. And then just enjoy the thing. Because guess what? You live your whole life and you never enjoyed any bit of it, even though you're a believer, because the whole time you just moaned about the fact that God didn't do anything. Where was God this whole time? And you know, he's going, he's like, well, I gave you bread. I give you wine. I give you like, what? What more do you want? We're not to come into this life and moan about it. We're to come into this life and give him 
glory. Serve the Lord with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of, of everything. You know, we see the early church doing this in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. So continually, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with, joy, with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And look what the Lord did. He added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, I wonder why. Because people were getting a great meal with a bunch of people who were joyful and glad and praising the Lord, rather than a bunch of people who were moaning about how horrible this life is. Remember, they were being persecuted, right? They had just, they had just crucified Jesus. And they're holed up and they're like, the Lord's adding, because these people are so joyful and they're so glad. Rather than we just look at all the coronavirus, right? We could, come on, it's, it's, this is just life. It has come from God. Life has come from God. Enjoy it and praise him for it. There's a great uh, quote I found from uh, Matthew, Matthew Henry, actually. I want to just read this a little bit to you. He says, we must enjoy ourselves, enjoy our friends, enjoy our God, and be careful to keep a good conscience that nothing may disturb us in these enjoyments. We must serve God with gladness in the use of what he gives us and be liberal in communicating it to others, and not suffer ourselves to be oppressed with inordinate care and grief about the world. That's right on, isn't it? Enjoy your friends. Enjoy the things God's given you, and don't, don't burden yourselves with the cares of the world. God has that, and he hasn't given those things for you to carry. The second thing we should just enjoy in this world is comfort. Now, you might be going, wait, what? I'm supposed to be comfortable? Well, look at verse 8. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. You might remember in our first study of this book, I mentioned that there were some very interesting Near, East, Near Eastern parallels to uh, Ecclesiastes. And I pointed out this section of scripture because there's the Egyptian poem, Song of the Harper, and there's the Epic of Gilgamesh, which both have very similar ideas in here. Now, they're not word for word. I'm not saying Solomon took these, um, but what I'm saying is the, the thought was similar in that um, area, because they both speak of white or sparkling garments that we should uh, put on and anointing your head with oil. Well, in that hot and dry climate, a white garment, white clothing was more comfortable. The dry climate, the oil kept your skin from cracking and being dry. So the idea is, is comfort here. I mean, even David recognized the blessing of God, uh, blessings of God that came with oil. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over, right? It's, it's that idea. They're outward signs of joy and contentment, not hedonism. I think sometimes you go too far the other way, like, oh, everything is bad in this world. I can't touch. I can't show. Like, listen, God has given us, you can be comfortable. Um, Martin Luther, you know who Martin Luther is, right? Right? Start of the Reformation. He was a believer. He was a very solid believer, but he really struggled with this idea of justification by faith. He went to become a monk. He tried to um, keep himself from eating certain things. He slept on a cold slab of stone because he thought he had to show some kind of uh, sacrifice, something to show how devoted he was to God. I've got to do these things. And he tried everything there was. You want to know what freed him? Galatians chapter 4, the just shall live by faith. You won't earn righteousness by the law. The just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther was freed from the shackles of work and not enjoying life. I think the monks met well, right? 
They wanted to show their devotion to God, but it wasn't going to be earned uh, by, 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 by not enjoying things. Now, obviously, are there things that we should stay away from in this? I'm not saying that, right? We still stick to Scripture. We don't, we don't indulge ourselves in sexual immorality. We don't partake of the things that God would not be pleased in. We're talking about just enjoying the things God has given us here. So there's a celebratory atmosphere here, right? Anointing head with oil, wearing white garments. It's okay to enjoy those things. Comfort is not a bad thing. In fact, God has given us those things to enjoy. I bought a wonderful, wonderful antique red leather fireside chair. I've been looking for one for my office that has no fireplace. But I did move it out to the fireplace to enjoy it out there. Um, Can I enjoy that? Am I hedonistic? Do I sit in that chair and go, I'm carnal, I'm carnal, I'm carnal? No, I can enjoy it. I even let my wife sit in it once in a while. I mean, I'm, I'm kind. Actually, have you even said it? <laughs> okay, probably not once. Okay. <laughs> oh, you did. You did. You came and said, okay. We, we can enjoy those things, folks. It's, it's okay. God has given us those things to enjoy. Um, we were responsible. Be, be wise, but we can enjoy comfort. The third thing is, is companionship. Look at verse 9, companionship. Now, I know he speaks specifically about a husband and wife relationship, but it speaks in the broad term of of companionship. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. It is is a blessing to to have a spouse. Um, Even in the Garden of, of Eden, God said it was good for man to be alone. And scripture repeatedly speaks about marriage being a blessing. Proverbs 5.18 says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. And Hebrews 13.4 says that marriage is an honorable thing. But Jesus said that in heaven, we're not married and we're not given in marriage. And so it's an enjoyment and it is a blessing, but it is an enjoyment and a blessing for life under the sun, for life here and now, because um, it will soon be lost. It's a sweet portion, even as he describes it here, um, in life under the sun. We can enjoy life with a spouse. And he says, in your labor, which you perform under the sun. Marriage takes work, but it's good work. You can enjoy even the work that goes into a marriage. We are created for companionship. Even if you're not married here, we're created to have relationship. That's what we enjoy, fellowship here in the body of Christ. Amen? We're created for that. And companionship is something we, we can enjoy and must enjoy. He wants us to enjoy it because it's all going to be different. We don't have marriages in heaven. And what he's saying here is that if we have these three things, we have contentment and, and comfort and companionship, we have those things in life. It makes it easier to pursue the things that we should do in life with confidence it's not just about the things that we receive from God. That's, these are all things that we receive from him. But what about the things that we do for him? Here's, here it is in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Whatever you end up doing, whether it's 
butcher, baker, candlestick maker, right? You do it with, do with all of your might, confidently trusting in the Lord and, and working for him. You know, Paul says, you know, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. And right, that's right after he speaks to uh, people who are bond servants, who are, who are slaves. And he says, you know, serve them heartily. Do it as if you're pleasing the Lord and not just as, as people pleasers, as eye pleasers, not just obediently when the, the master is looking because your master is, is looking. And he says, whatever your hand finds to do. I, I love this because the, the hand in Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, refers to strength. You could read through Joshua and you see that idea uh, there. And whatever you find speaks of opportunity, doesn't it? And the idea is this, we're to give ourselves to, to life according to the abilities and the circumstances of life. God gifts us with certain strengths, certain abilities, doesn't he? And we're to use those things because he will providentially work in our lives, in the circumstances to guide us to do what he wants us to do with those things. Whatever your hand finds to do, it doesn't just speak of like a random, like this is going to randomly happen. Uh, obviously, God is still providentially governing the, the, this. Whatever your strength of your hand, the abilities of your, your hand have, God is going to guide you to do um, something that will be for him. And we can do it with confidence. And we should. We should do it with confidence. Because he says there's, there's no work where you're going. There's no work or device. Device is an interesting word. It's, it's heshbon. It actually means reason. It's only used in Ecclesiastes, and both times in chapter 7 it was translated as reason. Uh, it's reason. So there's no reasoning where you're going. There's no wisdom. There's no knowledge. There's no skill, right? That's the idea there. Um, and in the grave, that's Sheol, where you're going. That's the end. So the idea is, is, is this. When, when, when you have those things in life, and not everyone does, but remember, he's trying to point us to enjoying the things that you have in life, contentment, comfort, companionship. Boy, it's a lot easier just to do whatever God has gifted you to do and enjoy it. To not grumble about your station in life, whatever work God has given you. You've got to recognize that, that he's made it as easy as possible because he's given you these things to enjoy and just go do it. And I think the point is we should take Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. One third final observation of God's work, and it's this. Time and chance happen to all. Time and chance happen to all. Now, let me begin saying that there's no such thing as chance or luck. Um, all things come to pass by God's providence. But remember, we're looking at things under the sun. Look at verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. So, from God's perspective, all things come about by his providence. But from man's perspective, under the sun, sometimes the happenings seem random, right? They seem like luck. That's why we come up with that idea. But time is in God's hand. We saw that back in chapter 3. At chance, those are the random events in time that just upset our uh, plans. But neither of those things are outside the control of God. We look at the race and we would assume that the race would go to the fastest runner, but that's not always the case. We would look at the battle and we would assume the strongest and, and fiercest army would win. That's not always the case. Time and chance happen to all. 
But none of those things are outside of God's control. He's in control of all of those things. In fact, I want to take you to one more passage really briefly. It's Psalm 44, because it just illustrates that idea very briefly. Psalm 44, just the first three verses. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days. In days of old, you drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. Isn't that amazing? These are the stories that the fathers told the sons, he's saying, right? And Joshua and all the Israelites, they went in, they conquered. And as you read them, it's, you see both. It's by the sword, but also by the hand of God. But ultimately, what they were able to pass down was we were saved by the arm of God because he favored us. He's the one that ultimately did it. But they didn't always see the arm of God there. And certainly, it was more recognizable in the Old Testament accounts that we have. I think sometimes today we wish we saw that, right? I wish we just, we just saw God just rain down some hailstones and some fire. But he operates differently in the New Testament. So what's the point here? Well, the things don't control the times. Because if they did, then we would expect the swift to always win the race and the strong to always win the battle and the wise, the brilliant, the learned, always to receive all the rewards, but we don't. Those things don't control the times. God does. And also, we don't know our own time. Verse 12, for man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. We don't know our time, and I know this is a, a theme we've seen several times here, we don't know when our last day will be, um, and in terms of uh, nature, it's going to come suddenly like a, a fish taken in a net or a bird in a, a snare um, in this world, because there is evil in the world, and things can suddenly happen upon us as we look at life under the sun, and that's what Solomon is doing here. But I want to remind you, the universe is not a machine. There is order there, but that's because it was personally created and governed by God, <laughs> So what's our Christian path here? How do we continue to navigate through this life? I just want to close with a, just a, a quote I found from a, a commentator, Ian Proven. And he says this, The Christian path through the madness and folly of our culture is this, to fear God and live to God's glory, to keep ourselves from idols, and to do what we do in life in this context with all our might. And this includes the ordinary things of life, eating, drinking, loving. Neither our evident mortality and vulnerability nor our sense of the complexity of everything must be allowed to distract us from following this path. We are, we are not or should not be Christians in the first instance, after all, because we want to escape mortality and vulnerability or because we want to understand everything about the universe. We are Christians, first of all, because God is God. <laughs> we won't understand everything. We're not, we didn't come, become Christians so that we would understand everything. 
And I think people often think that's what we're supposed to do. All right, explain it all to me. Listen, I'm going to free you. So you're going you're gonna to feel so free right now. When someone asks you about those type of things, why did this bad thing happen? Here's what you, you can say. I don't know. Is that freeing? I, I can tell you as a pastor, I've said that hundreds of times. I, I, I don't know. Why did God do this? Again, I don't know. Do you know it's okay to say that? Because there are things about God's work that are mysterious that we don't know. And it should free you, and it should free others. I don't put God in a box. I don't know how he works every way. But here's what I do know. The righteous are in his hands. So when someone questions you about that, right? Well, why is he doing this? And why is this happening? I say, oh, I, I honestly, I, I don't know. I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know, and let me introduce you to who I know. Introduce them to Christ and then they will know. Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. I thank you for the reminder of the amazing truth that we are in your hand. You have not forgotten us. We may see the world spinning out of control, maybe, in our minds, Lord, just losing their minds, running in madness, yet you are in control, and you have us in the palm of your hand. And Lord, we will trust in you, because the righteous are not moved. We will not lose our righteous standing before you. We will spend eternity with you. And I, I love, Lord, the, the freedom of having the path before us laid out so clearly by Solomon that we're, we're just to, to do what you've called us to do and to enjoy life in the process, to not overly burden ourselves about what's happening in the world. We're not God. We can't fix those things. So, Lord, may we just strike that right balance. May we pray for the things that we see taking place, but not burden ourselves overly with those things. May we enjoy the life that you've given us, that that, will, that joy and that hope in light of what's happening in this dark world will draw others to you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.